I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To be a good leader means that you've got to surround yourself with people who are not like you. You need to have a diverse team. You don't want groupthink. You have that diverse group of people giving you views and especially people who disagree with you, so that you can learn from that. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, we bring you the second instalment of the Women in National Security mini-series, produced in collaboration with Accenture. Our hosts, Gabe Brotman and Meg Tapia, are joined by Air Vice Marshal Catherine Roberts, the inaugural head of Space Command for the Australian Defence Force. They delve into what it means for Australia to have a Space Command, the importance of gender diversity in STEM, and Catherine's advice in taking control of your own career. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in National Security podcast. I'm Meg Tapia, a passionate contributor to Australia's national security, a mother, a learner, and a proud feminist. We're speaking to you today from the ANU campus, which sits on Ngunnawal land, and I want to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, who are the traditional custodians of the land that we're meeting on. Before we get started, we want to take a moment to acknowledge a pioneer of the national security community in Australia, Dr. Margot McCarthy. Last month, we lost a role model for women in national security with the passing of Dr. Margot McCarthy, all too young. Margot led a professional life of great national significance. She was Australia's first female national security advisor and was deeply committed to Australia and a life of service, a life of integrity, of decency and of grace. At her funeral, through the homily that she carefully crafted, Margot asked us to pray for our public servants, to show courage and integrity in their work, to always seek to promote the well-being of our community and of future generations. And she asked us to pray for women leaders, to give them the support they need to speak their truth and pursue their values, even when it is difficult. Margot's unending optimism and inner strength were a source of inspiration, particularly for the women she mentored and coached throughout her brilliant career. Her loss leaves a huge gap in the lives of everyone who knew her, and our thoughts and prayers are with her husband, Ross Baker, and her family and many, many friends. Dr. Margot McCarthy, you were a wondrous spirit and will be missed by all who knew you and all who loved you. Thanks, Gay. Vale, Margot. Moving from one pioneer to another, we're joined today by a real trailblazer, a leader who's always aimed high. She's made history by being one of the first women in an engineering unit in the Air Force, by becoming the inaugural head of Air Force Capability in 2019, and today is the first ever head of Australia Space Command. Welcome, Air Vice Marshal Catherine Roberts. 
Thanks. You can call me Kat too. Um, so it's a really exciting command to be in charge of. I don't like being called trailblazing, but I think that, you know, I've got to accept the fact that I probably have been trailblazing across a number of different appointments. But Space Command is certainly the most exciting one of that that I've had so far of the 20 or 30 jobs that I've had uh, in the Air Force in my career. So I've had a lot of jobs, but this one, space, it's the ultimate high ground. That's how we talk about it. And uh, it's just so exciting to be a part of something that's new and a big change for defence, recognising space is an operational domain that we need to operate in. That's amazing. Reaching for the stars, quite literally. Quite literally, <laughs> from the ground to the stars. From the ground uh, to the stars. The ground I to like the stars. that. So the idea of a space command sounds very cool. It certainly sounds very mysterious to me. I'm wondering if you can tell us, well, what is that and why does it matter in terms of national security? So from a national security perspective, Australia and defence are totally reliant on space. From everything from our traffic management systems to our finance systems to your uh, communications to the NBN, which relies on a, a satellite out in geostationary orbit, we rely on space for our daily lives. And defence rely on signals from space, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance for our land, maritime and air capabilities to actually be able to do our job to defend Australia. So from both a civilian perspective and a military perspective, space is really important to Australia and our way of life. Even with the recent floods, you know, we need space to be able to tell us what's going on on the ground below us so that we can actually, you know, react and do things appropriately from both, a again, an SES perspective through to a military perspective when we're providing support. Yeah. And so... As the new head of Space Command, what does good look like for you? What, what's your vision? What would you like to see happen? So, look, I'm a science fiction buff. I love science fiction. I also love comedy and, you know, not being cynical, but I would really love to see a space force in the future, you know, a separate branch of the Defence Force. And, you know, that's a vision. That's not tomorrow. But I think that, you know, what looks good for Space Command is actually getting some real capability with a lot of Australian industry involved in that as well too, that we can use to help defend Australia and protect our, our way of life. I mean, that's really important to me. We're very embryonic. We're starting to get some space capabilities. And when I talk about space capabilities, that includes, you know, things that are in space and also things that are on the ground looking at space, but very early on. And we're really quite behind. I think the, the four structure plan sort of talked about that because so much is going on. I was only speaking uh, to some cadets last night about the Chinese satellite SJ-21 in uh, geostationary orbit. It's all available uh, from unclassified sources, so I can talk about it here. It took another satellite, an old Chinese satellite, out of geostationary orbit and parked it further out. Now, that might not sound like that's a national security problem, but when I think about the fact that SkyMaster and Optus C1, our main satellite communication satellite, are sitting in geostationary orbit and there's a Chinese satellite that can go and just pick them up with a, an arm and actually just pull them out of orbit, which would make them dysfunctional, that's pretty scary to know that that capability exists. So what are we going to do about it? 
and there's not much yet. So that's what I've got to really work on, building the capability and, and doing it with the Australian Space Agency. That's the really exciting part. So we're part of creating 20,000 jobs by 2030 and tripling the size of the economy, the space sector in Australia. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for industry in there as well too. So, you know, from an economic security perspective, I think it's as exciting as it is from a military capability perspective to be able to, you know, make sure that our way of life isn't affected by what is actually happening in space. Just touching on the capabilities, the fact that we need to build some uh, capabilities here in Australia, where are the opportunities do you see for Australian industry in terms of building our space capability onshore? Well, I was only at a conference last week with many of our industry players in, in South Australia, and we have some really good tech. Probably what I would say is we're most advanced in space domain awareness. So that's actually having systems that look up into space and can tell us what's going on. Australia's geography is a huge advantage. When we look up, you know, we can see what's going on in space and America can't because they're on the other side of the world. So it actually gives us a good advantage to know what's happening. So the idea is that we'll get enough systems around the world and you probably only need three different locations so that you can actually see what's happening 24-7 up in space and that's really important. So space domain awareness, some of our satellite companies, absolutely amazing. Innovore is about to, you know, make a fully Australian Q satellites, so small satellites, not not the huge ones uh, yet. I met with Space Machines in Sydney a couple of weeks ago. They've got this great idea for space logistics and, you know, venture capital funded. People are investing in these capabilities, so they see the potential. Gilmore, the rocket company that plans to launch from Australia next year. So it's a really broad spectrum. And then we've got these great sensors that we can put on systems in space. I testing one on M2, which is a little CubeSat that we've got up in space, which split into two. So we could look at different ways of doing communications as well too. But a, a new sensor developed by Western Sydney University, a neuromorphic sensor that is a bit like a bee's eye or a, an insect's eye where you have all the different compartments. What that means is that it can really detect small changes and things that go very fast. That's important to be able to do from space, but also small changes in things. So it'll probably have some great application for, again, things like floods, climate change, you know, knowing what's going on on the ground, but it's it can pick up very small changes. So that's something that's really exciting as well too. So I, I, I meet someone new every day, absolutely every day. I meet either a new company or a new piece of innovation and and we talk to them about, like, from a defence perspective, how we can use their systems, but equally from a civil perspective, you know, it might actually be CSIRO or BOM or the Department of Agriculture. You know, there's many applications and most of the time civil and military are dual use. The military just has a bit of security tied to it and perhaps a different level of fidelity. So really exciting, the industry side of it. Challenging to make sure that we back the right people and work out how best to get the most out of industry. It's something I'm working on with the Australian Space Agency and James Brown, who's the uh, industry head of the Space Industry Association. So we're working really to try and think about how we do that more effectively. And just briefly, you touched on the tens of thousands of jobs that are going to come from this. So I'm just thinking about someone, a young woman who's trying to work out what to do with her future. Where should she be focusing? Where are the opportunities for her? Great question. Anywhere. Look, STEM is important. And obviously, you know, when you think of space, people think of orbital analysis and all the maths that goes with that. But everything from policy to ethics to law, 
to building of this space capability equipment, which is really the STEM side and operating that, but it's across almost every facet. So if you can think of a job that, you know, in any field, it probably has an application in space. One of my daughters is studying exercise physiology. Well, does that have an application in space? Yes, because astronauts, when they come back, have all sorts of issues in terms of readjusting and they do in space as well too. So they need to have a program that makes sure that they're physically, you know, remain conditioned when they're in space. So, you know, name a career, Gay, and I'll I'll give you an application (laughs) in space. It sounds to me like we might have some astronauts in the future. Ah, yes. Well, really excited about that. You know, I grew up watching Neil Armstrong land on the moon or I remember one of my first memories as a child and I was so excited by it. And then, you know, when I got older, I realised there was no astronaut program in Australia. And so I'd have to go overseas. And even then that was you know, all very, very difficult. Announced last week was that the fact that the Australian Space Agency are looking at establishing an astronaut program. So there's a study going on about how we can get Australian astronauts. And that will be open, obviously, to, you know, any inspiring Australian as we move forward. But it's so exciting. I mean, Australia was the first country to launch its own satellite from its own soil. We have a space heritage that's amazing. And yet, We've just stopped doing it for a long time and and now we're back, I think, you know, really back and announcements like that saying we're going to have an astronaut program are just so cool. You mentioned that Neil Armstrong was a huge inspiration to you when you were younger and I understand that he was an inspiration for you to go into engineering or take up an engineering degree. So I just want to know, apart from Neil, why did you decide to study engineering? And at what point? Was it at high school? Was it at primary school? It wasn't was it seeing pr- Neil? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't seeing Neil. I was, well, I won't tell you how old I was when I saw Neil, but I was quite young. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't seeing Neil. I always, when I was going through high school, I had this idea about being a research scientist. And the reason was really because of my mother. So my mother studied science and she was a great scientist. She actually had to go and do physics at a boys' high school because of they didn't teach physics to girls at the high school she went to. And she was a real pioneer in that sense, you know, pushing boundaries in terms of doing science. She went to teachers' college, so she had to become a teacher, so she taught science and inspired people. But but when I say my mother, my mother and her best friend, uh, Margaret, were very strong women and they just wanted you to break the boundaries do as much as you can with the intellect that you've got. And so I just tried to do whatever was the hardest, which is an odd thing. You know, I knew I was good at science and maths, but it was like, what's the hardest thing you can do? And what I was encouraged to do was to go into engineering. And so I did. And that was the hardest subject to get into, needed the highest, you know, ATAR at the time to get into. So that's what I aimed for. And I got into engineering. I don't think I even knew what engineering was, but it's been a good choice. (laughs) So if, if you weren't an engineer, what would you be doing? I think I would have done medicine. I think, you know, that scientist in me would have sort of thought about, you know, how can I apply that? How can I help the world? That's always been something that I think about, you know, how can I help the world? Sounds a bit weird because I'm in the military, but it is about making sure people are safe and secure. And, you know, that's sort of the thought process that goes behind a lot of the things that I do. I'm curious there about your transition into the military. I've always looked for great missions and great teams that I've wanted to work with. But when I was starting out, frankly, I was just looking for a job. So what was it like for you? What were you looking for? Was the military something you always wanted to be a part of or did it come about organically? It came about because it paid 
and I got to leave home and be independent. (laughs) (laughs) All very Um, good reasons. Well, yeah, I mean, my parents, my dad was a headmaster, my mother was a teacher. It was, uh, I even had to go to one of the same schools when my dad was a headmaster. It was awful. Like, you know, I think, um, look, love my parents, sorry, (laughs) I do, but the thought of escaping and being paid to be put through a degree, it could have been any service of the, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force. Air Force was most appealing, I think, to me because I loved flying, but it was about being independent. And that gave me a level of independence that was just so different than what I would have done if I'd stayed home, studied at uni and sort of had to probably not work for a few years, you know, while mum and dad supported you. And I'm like, no, I can get out there. I can be paid. I can do my degree. I can make this happen. And I can do it in another city and and traveling and yeah, many things. So it wasn't the military. So you were one of the first units with women engineers and you understand one of 10 women in a unit with about more than 100, 110 men. How did that experience shape you? It was a fascinating experience. It was called Frognal. It was based in Camberwell in Melbourne. But it was like living with a hundred brothers. It was really interesting. They became very protective of you. I'm not saying it was perfect, any of its forms, but it was a very interesting environment. And we did have 10. So, you know, and I've made one of my close friends now, even still, is one of the girls that I went through with during that time. So, you know, we were pretty close. I don't know how they expected 10 women to all love each other, though. Mm. There was sort of that expectation. That wasn't the case. But I did make lifelong friends. So that's pretty amazing from it. And I think looking back at it, I learned a lot about men and working with men. One example, don't beat them in a maths test. So the lecturer, there was about 400 people in our statistics class and the lecturer pointed out that I'd got the highest score for the exam. Oh my goodness. Oh, you know, the backlash was just, you know, was just horrendous. I never did that again. I never did it again. What was the backlash? Well, it was just like, you know, obviously you cheated or or you copied or the lecturer just likes you because you're the girl in the class and they're giving you special consideration and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, my goodness gracious me, I better not. I'll just aim that little bit lower (laughs) because I think that it's easier not to get all that backlash. Like it was 400 people in the class. So it was, um, it was just. Just not worth it. So Um, that experience clearly has shaped you then in terms of the way that you handled yourself during your training and maybe in the years that followed. Have you reverted? Are you now quite happy to kind of get to the top, to get to where you want to go and be quite proud of that and not be worried about what people are going to say? Yes, but it took a long time. So I think that really taught me about what sort of backlash you could get. And, you know, I just didn't want to deal with it. And I wanted to be good at my job and just, you know, continue on and not stand out too much. Although that was pretty hard because you stood out as a woman anyway in the environments I was working in. But really, I would say it's only been in the last four or five years that I've been really comfortable in in just, you know, okay, I stand out, you know, accepting that you might win an award for something and that that's okay and there's not going to be any backlash. Or in fact, there still will be some backlash, but I'm like, yeah, get over it, guys. You, there'll always be the question, oh, you got that because of your gender or something like that. And, and I'm like, yeah, no, I didn't. I know what I did and I know what I achieved. But you have to be happy and comfortable in yourself, really comfortable in yourself yeah. to just say, 
it was me. It wasn't anything else that, you know, and that backlash is just ridiculous. So did that experience that you went through in those early days of your career or your learning, did that in any way immobilise you or, I mean, constrain you? Did you feel as if you were achieving at the pace that you wanted to achieve? Did you feel as if your ambition was being achieved at the pace that you wanted? Oh, Gay, I think my ambition is always... Is always way ahead of what I've achieved. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I get into trouble for that sometimes. But look, I think that it just allowed me to understand the environment that I was working in and how to work it. One of my colleagues asked me the other day whether I had a psychology degree. And I said, no. And they said, well, how come you know so much about how men think or particular individuals think? And I said, well, because I've watched them for a long time. And, you know, you do learn to understand people and how they work and and you understand what that fairly male environment is like to work in and how to get wins. And so you mm. learn that over time. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Around the world... Democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So you spoke before about your mother and her friend uh, Margaret as role models and you yourself are now a role model and I'm curious to hear what you think about the importance of role models for women in defence and national security. I think it's absolutely essential. You mentioned the word trailblazer before. I think you've got to be able to open doors and show people what they can do and having role models is really important for that. You know, the, the, the coin phrase about you can't be what you don't see, it's a phrase. It's not true because obviously I've done things that I haven't seen, but, but it is so much easier if the door is open and that you have people who can support you and pull you through. And, you know, I speak to a lot of young women and men. I wouldn't say I'm a role model just for the females that are in the Defence Force. It's really about being a role model that you can actually draw the best talent through. But certainly it makes a difference if people can see you in that role and understand that it's something that they can aspire to rather than perhaps, you know, cutting themselves off before they get to a certain level. I do a lot of work with superstars of STEM. I've done a lot of work with the future through collaboration in mentoring as well too. And I think that that's really important as well too. So role models, mentoring, and a network. Again, probably only when I got to a fairly senior rank level that I really had a decent network. And the defence network, certainly amongst the um, senior women, is, is pretty strong. And I would say national security. It's actually a bit broader than just defence. 
So that makes a big difference, I think, when you can help each other talk through problems and issues and how to deal with certain situations that you've got trusted peers that you can have that conversation with that you know aren't going to judge you if you break into tears or do something that just might be normal but uh, looks not right in the circumstances that you might be in. So that's made a huge difference, I think, as well, too, having those peers support you. And I encourage all the young folk that I work with to set up a network and set up a diverse network and have that network online so that you can actually achieve the goals that you want to achieve. Yeah. And I feel like it's important to emphasize that network doesn't have to be gender specific. It doesn't just have to be a bunch of guys if you're a bloke or a bunch of girls if you're female. It should be diverse because what you want is different points of view from different people who've walked different paths. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was talking to the advocates about leadership, I, I was also talking about the fact that to be a good leader means that you've got to surround yourself with people who are not like you. You need to have a diverse team. You don't want group think. You know, so it's sort of a leadership principle as well, too, that you have that diverse group of people giving you views and especially people who disagree with you so that you can learn from that. Um, mm-hmm. But you still need the trusted ones that you, you feel totally comfortable with talking about any situation that you've been in and that you know that that advice won't go any further. So I think, you know, it's a bit of a two different groups. You know, there's the whole network and then there's the, the really close network in there as well. Just on that diversity of background and diversity of the workforce, there's a lot of evidence around pointing to the benefits of diversity in terms of the bottom line for large organisations, you know, ASX 100 companies. But what are the benefits that you've seen in terms of better outcomes that have come from diversity, from a diverse workforce, diverse approach? So I think, you know, in my previous role as head of Air Force Capability, I really valued getting diverse views about future capability. Diverse views, really important. Young people, old people, different mindsets, different thought processes, you know, gender came into it as well too. Because when you're actually designing future capability, you need to think about who's going to be operating and how they're going to be operating. Women, peace and security came about because, you know, in so many war situations or humanitarian situations, the women needed things that women need Um, and the sorts of supplies, you know, if you're going to supply tampons or pads or something else like that, they didn't automatically include them in the aid boxes. So there's been quite a lot of research done into that. But from a pure capability point of view, some of the big wins that we've had, like Loyal Wingman, first combat aircraft to be built in Australia in the past 50 years, came about through a diverse team of industry working with our operators and some scientific types, I might say, to really turn something from a concept to a capability that's now flown and being tested, which is going to be absolutely amazing and brings a completely different mindset into how we operate in the air with a remotely piloted aircraft that's got artificial intelligence in it. The fact that it's remotely piloted to start with means that there is this huge paradigm shift from having a crude combat aircraft. We've had it since wars began to something that's no longer got a crew in it. And that requires a whole shift Mm. of mindset. So having those diverse teams get those mindsets really working. And that's where I see the success from a capability perspective. There's other examples, I think, where we've worked on future capabilities. But even when we work on the future workforce and what that needs to look like in the military, for example, you've got to meet certain standards of medical fitness to be able to do certain jobs. Uh, That makes a lot of sense. But I'm like, okay, these pilots are going to be flying these uh, loyal wingmen. Do we think they need to be medically fit? Could they have no legs? 
does their eyesight need to be perfect? Lots of questions like that. I love to ask those things. And it, it's, well, no, they're sitting at a desk flying a computer. So, and everyone's like, oh, you can't change the medical standards. I'm like, of course you can. But it's a whole new concept. Oh, how are we going to train them? How are we going to train them? Well, we're going to put them on pilots course. And maybe we need to think a little bit differently about that. And they're, they're questions that I think even I can bring, you know, bringing that different mindset, bringing the mindset of an engineer into something that's an air capability. So diverse thoughts give much better solutions. Changing the medical standards means that it's open to so many more people too. And so I think it'll be great to get the diversity of workforce <laughs> to be remote pilots. Well. That's really great. I really like that you are championing a changing conversation about what diversity really means in practice and not just accepting that the way that we do things today needs to be the way that we do things going forward into the future. Mm. I have a question related to that, which is around myths. What myths and stereotypes do you think need to be changed in the Defence Forces and in national security to be more attractive to that diverse talent? Look, I think the the biggest myth is is about it not being something that's helpful. Like it's a man's world, you know, it's not something that helps Australia. As in the Defence Force doesn't help Australia? So if you're talking about the Defence Force, you know, people can get the view in their mind, it's there for war, it's there to attack people. It's here to defend Australia and it does that in a whole heap of different ways. So, you know, it does that in terms of international relations and humanitarian assistance and disaster relief in, in places like Tonga. But people's view of it is that it's all about literally killing people. Now, it may be and you've got to be willing to take that on. But equally, you've got to understand it's there to help people. Mm. It's there to protect Australia and its national interests. It's here to protect the way of life. When you put it in that mindset, you create a whole new thought process for people who want to join. So there's stereotypes, I think, about what national security is, what the defence force is, and they're on the right extreme. They're on the far right, you know, we're in a war, conflict, that's what national security is all about. It's not. It's far bigger than that. So I think that that myth needs to change. Yeah, I think you're right. I was just thinking as you were speaking about the defence force and everything that it's done domestically over the last couple of years in particular with regards to COVID and flooding and fires. And that has certainly been a helpful view of what the defence force does without necessarily it being the usual kind of wartime view of defence and fighting. It does change the stereotype to a point, but that isn't our role. Our role is to do defence assistance, sorry, assistance to the civil community, but our role is to do war. That You need to recognise that. We are there to fight wars if we're needed to, but to do everything we can to protect from getting to that point. So that, I think, is a, a bit of a nuance in, in terms of what we do. So I wouldn't really love the Defence Force to be seen as the National Guard is in America, that it's there to come and just help you with cyclones and floods and humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. It, it will do what the government needs it to do. But you also need it to be able to protect you. And to do that, it's really got to get into that high end sort of war fighting. It's got to be capable of doing that, which is important as well too. So you can't completely remove that myth that it's about war because it is at the far end of the scale. So just in terms of people joining the Australian Defence Force and talking here women, I mean, what do you see as the biggest points of reluctance or fears that women have in terms of joining? And what's your advice on overcoming those concerns? So I think there's a couple of barriers in terms of joining and some of them it's not the women, it's their parents. It's their parents' view of what the Defence Force does and it depends on where their parents come from and what the Defence Force did in potentially the countries that they came from. So some of it is just purely social, social norms, social biases, 
don't really go to women belong in the defence force. If I do a um, an unconscious bias check, and I've done them a few times, I think that women are best at being secretaries. I don't like that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if you've done the testing, the unconscious bias testing. Yeah, I've done a few of those. It's terrible. I was so shocked at myself. <laughs> I thought, how can I actually think that? That's my unconscious thinking. It's not my conscious thinking. So there is a strong bias in all of us to sort of think, what are women best for from a society's perspective? Now, I don't think women are best being secretaries at all, but unconsciously that's how I've been trained. So We've got to get over those biases. Then there's the fitness element of it. Something that we're trying to deal with right now, you know, they're worried about how fit they need to be, what that standard is. And that's something we're trying to sort of tackle because it's it's sort of like, am I going to be, you know, running against the guys and you're not? But I think there's, except for those who are already sports people, you know, there's a real concern about sort of the fitness side. And then there's the cause, like what's the cause? Why am I doing this? What's the benefit that I'm going to bring to society if I do this job? And we don't sell that particularly well. So, you know, why would you join the Defence Force when I can be a doctor? When I can be a lawyer, I know I can help people. How does the Defence Force help people? And so, you know, just trying to appeal to that a little bit and getting the narrative right around what you're going to be there for and what you can do and what you can achieve. And and also the last thing is, Younger generation don't really like doing the same job for very long. And so they sort of think that, what's this long-term career that you do in the Defence Force? And I'm like, well, it's actually not because, as I said, I've done 20-plus jobs. They're all very different from being a diplomat in London Mm -hmm. to running a maintenance hangar to being the space commander. They're not the same job. So you do actually change jobs pretty often. So those sorts of things I think are important. And encouraging them when they're 7 to 12 years old to sort of really think about doing STEM, I think is really important as well too. So that there's a lot of the Air Force and space jobs are STEM. There are, you know, very broad across every category, but you still need to have that STEM basis. So we've got to encourage young folk to do STEM. So they come in, go to recruiting, very few jobs available to them because they don't have the STEM background or less jobs available to them because they don't have the STEM background. So they don't get the choice. Yeah, and the chief scientist has been quite um, vocal on that just recently, particularly in the teaching of STEM and at that year 11 and 12 because that's where the women are dropping out. So. And I had that personal experience with my daughters who were like, we can't do physics. Because it's going to affect my mark to get into uni. Well, yeah, and it may do. And I, and I said, well, give it a crack. So I got one of them to give it a crack. The eldest who didn't give it a crack went on to ANU here and um, guess what? She did physics. She did really well. Bravo. I I told you. Can't tell them. (laughs) People have to find out for themselves. You've got to pursue your own passion. And there'll be some people who are really attracted to STEM um, and there's some people who won't be. You have to have that diversity. But I guess I want to make uh, an encouraging call out to listeners out there who are thinking about maybe engineering, maybe STEM courses. If that is an area that you're interested in, then definitely explore it because we definitely need more women across the board uh, doing STEM work. Yeah, we do. And I think the other thing that I would say is just because you didn't do STEM at school, don't cut yourself out. One of the young women that I mentor started off, did an arts major in year 11 and 12, didn't do maths, travelled around the world for a year. And then she decided that she was really into geology. And so she had no sort of STEM background to take her into that. But she started off and did a geology degree. She's now a geology professor at university. and But she didn't actually do it in 
high school because it wasn't the thing to do and, and, you know, you did arts and that sort of stuff. So there's the opportunity for many, I think, to actually switch across as well too. So, yes, we need more from the very young, but don't think that just because you didn't do it means that you can't. I think that people put themselves out of the game pretty quickly because they just, you know, put that barrier up. I couldn't do it then. I can't do it now. You're a bit different when you're older um, than you were when you were maybe 16, 17, 18, going through school as well. What I'm hearing is that for people like me who studied history and the liberal arts, there is hope for me to become an astronaut yet. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I cannot wait to put on the uniform. (laughs) But it's a a really important message, not just for Meg in becoming an astronaut, but uh, for women who are looking for options and career changes. And, And as you say, as you get older, you've experienced the world a bit more you've had a chance to breathe out and actually work yourself out a bit better mm. than the exploring those opportunities in the STEM careers because we need them. We definitely need Cyber them. Cybersecurity is my area of interest, but in terms of space, in terms of so many sectors. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said you kind of found your voice or found your confidence only really in the last five years. You became comfortable in the role that you're in and the woman that you've become and the power that you have in being who you are. I want to explore a little bit about where you find your confidence to take your seat at the table because you are still one of the few women at the leadership table in the senior ranks of defence. Your confidence. Well, I I, I just (laughs) – so I watched a TED Talk once about fake it till you make it. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? I don't think I'm faking anything, but it had this sort of uh, thing that you could do if you were a bit worried about a meeting, going and, you know, stand in the toilet and do this. Oh, the super, power pose. The power pose. For listeners, all, we've all got yeah. our hands on our hips. The Wonder Woman pose. The, the Wonder, Wonder Woman, Woman pose. pose. Yeah, the Wonder Woman <laughs> pose. Um, and it's supposed to, like, build up your uh, your confidence. <laughs> but that, that aside, so, you know, I still get nervous sometimes going into some of the meetings that I'm going to. You've got to be well prepared. You've got to understand the psyche of the room. And I've got pretty good at at that element, I think. And equally, you've got to recognise what the limitations are. So I know in some meetings I could say something and it will not be heard. And I know that. And so I have my trusted guys who will say it again. And then I'll claim it. Now, the longer you work with them, the more your voice is heard, the more that you can actually get everything across. But I think, you know, that initially if you're walking in cold, as a group of people you don't know, mainly guys, it's it's going to be tricky and you've really got to work out how you're going to get your message across. So you've got to try every technique, not be afraid to, but claim what you've done and contributed. But it's just about just knowing how it's going to be. And I hate using techniques like that, but it's sort of just a reality at the moment. When we get more diverse in that group, it will not be the same. Mm. And and I would say now, after you've built your reputation for a while, being in those senior committee meetings for a long time, your voice is very well heard and, mm. and heard above others often as well too, which is great. It's just getting through that initial barrier as that group is sort of pulling together. I hope that happens sooner rather than later where you're not having to resort to those sorts of oh, things. But I, I've done it myself, yeah. right? I think we all have. We've all had those experiences where you've been in the room and you've made a suggestion and everyone's gone, okay, yes, and then someone else, a man, makes the same suggestion again five minutes later and everyone you know, collapses. Oh, that's a fantastic idea. Well, hang on a second. I just said that five minutes ago. Yeah, but I think it happens in groups that are not that familiar with you versus groups that are more familiar with you. So I find that as the committee meetings go on, the more that you've been in, the more that you've said, 
You do become recognised, but it's breaking in, I think, is the hardest thing. And it doesn't happen to me much anymore because I'm no longer worried about being called aggressive or assertive or characteristics that are seen as unfeminine, but would a man would be potentially, you know, really rewarded for. So I'm, again, you know, I've changed. I'm no longer worried about that. I'm not worried about having a job. I'm pretty sure I'll get one. <laughs> um, so I think that changes your attitude to how you address those meetings. So the techniques, yeah, but when I think about it, I'm actually a lot more confident now in just not worrying about being called emotional, for example. I'm like, I have no idea how women get through the senior leaders' roles. We go through pregnancy. We go through menopause. I mean, my God, you know, your brain gets scrambled twice in your life. And you're going through that in some of these senior roles. It's really quite tricky. So, you know, if you get a bit hot and go red and they say, you know, you're obviously getting emotional, it's like, actually, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not emotional. I'm just very hot. (laughs) It's physiological. Yeah, but you've got to call those things. That's tricky. Yeah. You know, so you've got to be really confident to be able to sort of say that. And crying. Are you allowed to cry? I've cried at work. I'll be quite honest. I've mostly cried in the toilets or with, in my office with the door shut rather than out in the open. Mm. But yeah, it does come with that, I think, that stigma and that perception that you might be seen as weak or unable to do the job for some reason because you're having a hard day. Mm. And we all have that. We all have just a hard day every now and then and you can't escape and you've got to shut the door and you've got to let it out. But you let it out and then you dry your eyes and you keep on going. I had to actually learn that from some of the women that worked for me, that it was okay because I was just not used to it either because I, I, it was just seen as such a, a weak thing to do. So you certainly didn't cry uh, where you could be seen. But, but I mean, letting out your emotions is good for you, I think. And, I and um, crying with happiness is a good thing as well too. Um, when I took over the command and, you know, I'm signing the certificate, I'm like, wow, I'm the space commander. And there were tears coming into my eyes and my boss He's like, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm just really emotional. And it was just so funny because he'd never seen me do that. It was emotional and it was really exciting. But it was just showing that level of emotion is important, but we're sort of taught not to do that too often because it can be seen as weak. Yeah, and you will in politics. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is a brutal world, can show no weakness. You can't show any vulnerability. It's tough. And so, yeah, just you talking about menopause, it's just, it's really interesting. Having gone through that perimenopause, that was my favourite part. And going through that uh, when I was, from the moment I was selected, actually. And it is, it's a tough ride physically, physiologically sleep wise and a range of other things and you can't talk about it and so oh, yes, I always you can. no no I'm not suggesting that you I, I did oh no you I couldn't did. as a politician no yeah. no no but you can't sort of go out to the public and, no. and, and include it in your newsletters that you're going through men- no. menopause <laughs> but it, it is it's one of those things that actually spoke about it in my valedictory speech about the fact that it is a challenge for women and quite often we're at that age when you go into politics and so you'll often see women fanning themselves in question time but no one says a word Mm. Uh, because you're not you you cannot show any vulnerability or weakness and so it's we need to just be having these conversations this is normal this is what being a woman is it's like being pregnant Mm -hmm. no one carries on about women being pregnant they celebrate it and uh, and rightly so and Mm. they understand the challenges around some pregnancies so they get all that 
But for menopause, it's basically we, and women have been bad at this too. We've got to keep quiet about it because usually we're in a senior position and we don't want anyone knowing mm. that we haven't slept all night or that we feel like we're about 500 degrees. Look, Gaty, look, it's, it's a great, it's a great statement. And, and I think that because you are at those senior levels, yes. that makes it yes. worse. Yes. Um, so we've been silent about it. Look, I love in some of the meetings that I do with the guys when it's an all-male meeting and, and me, you know, just, just saying the word menopause and just watching the reaction. Great. And they're like, oh, we can't talk about that. And I'm like, of, of course, course we can. can. Exactly. Of course we can. And I'm like, you know, you just need to be recognising that this might be me going through menopause. And they're like, oh, my God, you know. And it was just I had so much fun. It's pretty obvious that I'm hot. I think I think we just need to normalise this conversation. Yeah. The reality yeah, is exactly. women are 50% of the population. We yeah. hold very senior roles in government uh, and across the business community. We go through these things. It doesn't mean we're weak. We're just human. Exactly. And, you know, I know that we're human, but I did read, I think it's uh, Carolyn Carvello's book about the invisible women. Have you read that? The Invisible Woman? Absolutely amazing about how many things are actually designed around men. Air, air condi- conditioning. Air conditioning. Air conditioning designed about male body temperature. Um, so women are often cold. Toilets, there's never enough toilets for females. Everything from cars to artificial intelligence. It's an amazing book that just details the design of things and how they've been designed quite specifically for men. So, um, you know, it's really helpful to know some of those things when when you're dealing with the fact, yeah, we're women, we're a bit different, and that's okay. Yeah, and it is, and it doesn't make us any less of leaders. No. Oh, no, (laughs) it's different. That's just different. Exactly right. So how do you learn and recover from mistakes? Well, you've got to accept that you're going to make mistakes. When you're working in an environment that's got a lot of guys in it, you stand out, your mistakes are going to be noticed. And so you're going to be judged for those mistakes, probably a little bit more harshly because you're really noticeable because you are slightly different. So I think you've just got to recognise that and know that you will make mistakes. You've got to accept those mistakes and you've got to say, but I will fix it. And you've got to be able to, you know, move forward and work out how you're going to fix that mistake. You've got to turn the judgment around, the fact that they've noticed you and they've noticed every little thing that you've done wrong. You've got to turn that around to show them every little thing you've done right. Some guys are really good at that. They will, in every speech that they have to their peers, to their boss, they'll talk about the really good things that they've just done. Women don't tend to do that. And sometimes you need to. So, Don't let them focus on the mistakes. Let them focus on the things that you're doing. You're going to have to sell yourself a little bit. There's nothing wrong with that. If you've been doing good stuff, talk about it and talk about it really broadly. And I think that makes a difference, you know, as to how you're perceived, not just for your mistakes, but for the good things that you've got to do. But you need to set that narrative. No one else can do that for you. Yeah, just on that narrative, the narrative in your head about the fact that you obsess about it. Yes, yeah, yeah. How do you you get rid of the narrative in your head that you obsess about it? Well, write down the five good things that you did. (laughs) I mean, yes, you can obsess on it or you can think about the positive things that you did and that's something you've got to put yourself in that positive mindset. I find even just writing down the three things that were good today versus the ten things that I really think that I stuffed up is I'm much better the next day at fixing the 10 things than I am (laughs) if I didn't just do something as simple as that. So you've got to put yourself in that mindset and you've got to still also sell yourself about the positive things that you've done. That's great. So 
There's three key takeaways that I got out of this conversation with you, which have been amazing. First is understand your environment and understand your audience. Know the people around you and know how they operate so that you can be your best within that environment. The second takeaway for me was own your worth. You are there for a reason. Figure out what that is. You probably already know and you've got to own that. And third of all, it's Accept that you will make mistakes. You've got to own that. You've got to learn from the mistakes that you make. Mm. Express gratitude around the good things that you do and that you've achieved and move forward. That's a good summary. Thank you. I'll accept that. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Kath, for your candid insights into your career journey and the lessons you've learned along the way, uh, plus the terrific tips on what to do to map your career trajectory and also the insights you've given us into the spaced world and the opportunities (laughs) there, particularly for women. Marvellous. Thank you. And I also want to thank everyone for tuning in. Thanks for listening. We welcome your feedback, so please send comments, suggestions and ideas for questions for future guests through all the socials. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word with your friends and family. We look forward to you joining us for our next conversation with a female leader shaping our nation's security. Until then, thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.